0: Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and have a prayer time here. You got somebody on your mind? First of all, think about those who are lost without Christ. It's always good for us to pray for them. Christ is their only hope. Lift them up before the Lord. Secondly, if you know somebody who is going through a storm right now, it might be a sickness storm, it might be a financial storm, it might be a marital storm, it might be a storm caused by children or any number of things like that. Pray for people who are going through a storm and also pray for our nation. The Bible tells us we're to pray for kings and all who are in authority that we might live a quiet and peaceful life. And there's so many things that are going on now that seem to be kind of a threat to that quiet and peaceful life. And yet the Bible says the answer is to pray. And then the Apostle Paul says something very interesting right after that. And he talks about God desiring to save all kinds of people. You know, those kings, those people in authority, their biggest problem is not their political party. Their biggest problem is the condition of their heart. And only God can change a heart. And so we pray for them because... More powerful than America's nuclear arsenal are its churches where believers gather in the name of the Lord and they pray together according to the word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Unstoppable. So let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And I'm going to give you a moment to pray. Whatever I said uh, that may have kind of sparked your attention Pray in that direction. Father, we know, um, as we've been singing, we don't have any other hope except you. And we want to thank you that you have given us an endless supply of hope because our hope is an eternal hope. And we thank you that it's more than just for this life. Paul said, if our hope is in this life only, we're of all men most miserable. We don't want to live like that. We want to understand you, the God of all hope, the God of all comfort, and the God with an eternal plan. And we want to pray, Father, that we would never, ever be resistant toward that plan. We pray, Lord, that we would always be in submission to you. Now, Lord, in the lives of people, we don't really know what your plan is. You told us in your word very clearly that uh, there's a broad road that leads to destruction, but there's a narrow one that leads to eternal life. And we're praying for people that are on our hearts to come to the narrow road. But, Lord, we also confess we can't get them there. We can't sell them on it. We can't persuade them on it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're begging you, God, send your spirit to them to convince them of their sin, to bring them under conviction, to show them their need for a Savior, and then to show them that glorious cross where Jesus died to pay for our sins. We're asking you, Father, to help those who are sick today. We've got people in the church still battling uh, COVID, and um, I pray for them. And we've got other people with other things that are going on in their life as well that are physical, and uh, we want to ask you, as a God who is a healer to heal them. And if you use doctors and medicine and all of that, we still will praise you because you're the one that gave humans the wisdom to know how to use that medicine to come up with treatments. And you're also the God who made our bodies with the ability to heal. If you choose to do it in a supernatural way, well then hallelujah, we'll praise you even more And we'll thank you regardless because we know that um, however long we may live here, living here and living well is not the goal. The goal is to be with Jesus in heaven, according to what John 14 says, in that mansion you have prepared for us. And then, Father, we pray for our nation. And we uh, freely acknowledge, Lord, we deserve your wrath. But we're praying that As the Old Testament says, in wrath, you would remember mercy. And we pray for our president. We pray for our vice president. We pray for Congress, both houses. We pray for governors and our state legislatures. We pray, Lord, for school boards. And we pray for uh, mayors and city councils. We pray for judges from top to bottom. And we ask, Lord, that you might be glorified, that your plan and your agenda might supersede whatever man tries to do. And we pray, Father, that you would save people that we don't expect to see come to know the Lord. And we pray that you would do it to remind us of your sovereign power. We pray, Father, that you would bless us today. And we pray that in this blessing, as we look into your word, Open our eyes. Give us tender hearts. Let us understand what you would say to your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Exodus. Exodus chapter 23. We've got a bunch of slaves, ex slaves, that are on their way to Canaan. Do you remember the song? I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I'm bound for the promised land. It's a hymn called, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand. used to love that hymn. And um, in that hymn, it talks about the promised land as dying and going to heaven. I'm on my way to the promised land. Well, I understand why they would say that. I just would suggest you, it gives us a wrong picture. And we'll talk more about this next week, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But when the Israelites went into Canaan, they had certain laws they had to follow, or God told them, you're out. I'm so glad that's not going to happen when I get to heaven. I'm glad I'm not going to come to an introductory orientational meeting at the gates of heaven And have somebody come out and say, here's how you have to live here in heaven or you're out. That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? So uh, Canaan, the promised land, was a place where if they didn't obey, God promised them they were going to be out. And that happened to them. He also told them when you get to that land, there are (laughs) Amorites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, termites right all those ites that are in the land and you're going to have to fight can you imagine you're laying on your deathbed and you've lived a long life and you're tired you're ready to go into eternal rest and as you breathe your last there are angels gathered around you and the angels say okay get ready we're going up to heaven but you're going to have to fight to get what you have coming That would be a terrible thing. You're not going to have to fight for heaven. That battle and that victory has already been won. And there are several other things we could say. So Canaan is not a good picture of heaven. Now I do believe it's a good picture of the abundant life in Christ that we have down here. And so I am in Egypt and I'm lost. That's a picture of a lost person. And you were born, and you were born enslaved to sin. And Pharaoh is kind of a picture of Satan. He was your master, and he ruled over you. And then God sent a redeemer, Moses is a picture of Christ, and brought you out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And then he started changing your life through his word, through his law. And you learned what God required, and you also learned that you couldn't keep everything that God required. And you began to see the picture of redemption in the various sacrifices, the innocent blood of lambs and goats and bulls that was shed on your behalf so that God could accept you. And you began to think about the promises of a Messiah that would come one day and shed his blood For all of those who would believe and that he would pay their sin debt and be the final sacrifice for their sin. And then as you went through the wilderness, we call it the wilderness wanderings, but really it wasn't wandering. They were led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, right? And uh, they had to learn things. They had to learn how to trust God. They weren't very good at that. Neither are you. They had to learn that God meant what he said. Always like a group of toddlers, there's always that one. And you're probably that one, right? That you have to test it and see. I, I do that even now. Every time I go to a Mexican restaurant and they put the plate down and they say it's hot, I have to check. You ever do that? Ah, it's not hot. And sometimes it's like no big deal. Other times it's whoo. You know, it really is. Well, I find out I'm kind of like that with the Lord as well. I'm like that when I drive. If the speed limit's 50, ah, surely they won't stop you for doing 57, will they? Some will. Some won't. Maybe they would just give me a warning. Some will, some won't. I can't remember the last time I got a warning and um, I was uh, just I just become pastor at First Baptist Church of Chelsea, and we were going to go eat in Claremore. That's about 25 miles away. And uh, you didn't really want to eat in Chelsea. And uh, we were driving along Highway 66. And I guess the service was really good that day. And uh, I'm pretty excited. And when I get excited, I get a lead foot. And uh, next thing I know. Um, The lights and the siren and I pull over and uh, you know and uh, that's back in the days when you actually got out of your car and you met the policeman and uh, then you would sit in the front seat of the uh, car and they would tell you what you did and fill out the ticket Uh, please don't do that now it's been a long time since I've been stopped but last time I was stopped, I got out of my car, and I got a gun pulled on me. So don't, don't do that. They don't ever know what they're up against. And um, so anyway, on this one, I did get out, met him. He was very nice, sat down in the car. And uh, he was looking at my license, and my tag was still a Georgia tag. We had not lived there very long. And so he had questions about that. And I said, well, we just moved to Chelsea from Georgia, and I kind of wanted to get as much time as I could. That's back when, you remember when tags around her used to be $400 a year? And that's about what mine was. And so, you know, I said, I wanted to get more time. He goes, sir, get your tag changed. I'm, yes, sir, I'll do that this next week. And then he says, so what are you do in Chelsea? <laughs> well, I work at First Baptist Church. And he looked at me and he goes, So what do you do at First Baptist Church? And I said, I'm the custodian. And uh, he looked at me, and I said, I'm the pastor. And he goes, hands it back, and he goes, I'm going to let you buy on this one. He goes, but here in Rogers County, we like to keep our reverends alive. He said, slow it down and take care of yourself and get that tag taken care of. He goes, I will be watching. You have any stories like that? Just wasn't paying attention. Thought I could get away with it. I'd probably driven that fast a lot of times before. And that's about as smart as going through a red light. I mean, it turns red and you hit the gas and you go through and you go, woo, I think I'll do that all the time. What's the point in stopping? Well, you know what the point of stopping is. And you know that if you keep doing that, it's not going to turn out well for you. And there are times when God speaks, and it seems as though we kind of escape by. We, we get a warning. And we think in our, depra- in our depravity, we tend to think, well, then I guess God doesn't care. And I guess it's okay to run those red lights or exceed those limits and it's going to happen without any consequence or anything like that well that's what god teaches you in the wilderness you can't get away with everything now i'm glad he doesn't hit us with the whole package all at once but step by step day by day as we go through the wilderness he's preparing us for canaan the abundant life And when we enter into the abundant life, we cross over Jordan, into that place he's prepared for us. We have battles to fight. But here's the wonderful thing about it. I don't mind fighting battles if I can win. What I hate is fighting battles that I lose. And we find that the Israelites, when they got into Canaan, it was win some and lose some. But the losing battles... That always came because they were disobedient to God. Whenever they obeyed God, they won. Now, does that mean they didn't get cut? Does that mean that there weren't people being killed in the battles? Does that mean that there weren't some setbacks? Of course, you know your Bible well enough to know that there were trials and problems and tests. And uh, that even Canaan, as wonderful it was, it wasn't the Garden of Eden. It wasn't heaven. It wasn't paradise. And things were rough in there. King David was a man after God's own heart. He had enemies. There were times when David would sin, and we read about it in the Scripture, and we read about it in some of his uh, psalms that he would write. And there were times when You know, he would cry out to God and wonder what was going on, and there were times when God showed him. There were other times when it was just, well, he was doing what Paul said, those who desire to live godly in this life shall suffer persecution. Hey, folks, there are going to be some people that just don't like you just because you represent God and you try to honor God in everything that you do. And Jesus said... A man's enemies will be those of his own household. You ever had any of that? That's a tough, tough thing to go through. So God has to get us ready through the wilderness. He takes us out of Egypt. And in the time in the wilderness, that's where you learn to believe God. That's where you learn the consequences of disobedience. That's where you learn that God means what he says. And until you do that... You really can't enter into the abundant life. But when you get that, you'll be able to enter into the abundant life. And you'll be winning more battles than you lose. And you'll be seeing the blessing of God upon your life. And you'll begin to walk by faith and know that all things work together for good. And um, you'll love the Lord more. Well, so this is what is going on here in Exodus chapter 23. And um, I'm going to go ahead and make the point first and then read the scripture. I think it'll help you understand it because some of this stuff, as we've seen, it gets sort of tangled up in what in the world is he talking about that would apply to us? Well, we find principles out of this that we live by. Okay. So number one, if we're going to go to Canaan, if we're going to get this group of ragtag slaves in order and uh, get them ship and ready for that promised land that he is going to take them to then let's just say this number one the quality of your faith is revealed in stewardship now stewardship does include money but stewardship is actually managership you are managing Everything that God has given you. And if you don't do it the way He says, it's simply this because you don't believe Him, because you don't really trust Him yet. And if you're not a person who is a good steward of what God has given you, then you're not really a mature Christian. I don't care how much you know, I don't care how long you've been saved, you're really not there because you really don't trust and believe God. But notice what he says in verse 10. 10. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and be fallow, unplowed, that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and that your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. And all that I have said to you, in all that I have said to you, excuse me, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Well, could it be any more clear? That's easy enough. Till the land, harvest the land for six years, and then let it rest. Now, you've got to remember this is a day where they did not have fertilizers and the chemicals and things like that that we use and modern-day farmers use to rejuvenate the land. They had some things that they could use, manure and uh, compost, those kind of things. But um, God said, hey, it's my land. I'm giving it to you. They were managing it for him. Here's how I want it done. Now, if somebody else is the owner, you ought to do things the way that they want you to do it. Doesn't it aggravate you when you have somebody babysit your kids and they ignore all your rules? Doesn't it aggravate you when you loan somebody your car and here's what I want you to do with it and they don't do it? It's a little frustrating. We should understand that. Well, God is saying, this is my land that I'm giving to you. And while you live on this land, here's how I want you to treat it. I want the land to rest every seven years. Now, you know what's going to happen if you're a farmer And nearly everybody was, if you were raising sheep or oxen or donkeys or anything like that, what happens on my livelihood, you know, that seventh year? What am I going to do? Well, God was going to take care of them and God was going to bless them. In another passage, He said, that sixth year, that sixth year is going to be a big year. And if you will obey me, you'll have enough to set aside and live off of that. Well, what do we do about this land if we don't till it? There are going to be plants that come up, volunteer. What about these tomatoes over here? What about this corn over here? What about the wheat over here? And God said, leave it alone and let the poor be able to take it so that they'll have something to eat and let the wild beasts eat what they don't. And so God said, just trust me. I know what I'm doing and it's going to be okay. Now, something interesting uh, happened here. It says in Second Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. It says he took into exile uh, in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Who is he? Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar seemed to come out of nowhere. And the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, whichever you prefer, they seemed to come out of nowhere. And God had warned his people, you've read the Old Testament prophets, over and over, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans and they're going to come and conquer you. And when the prophets would say that, the people would kind of snicker uh, because thinking that those Chaldeans, those nomadic People that uh, you know they were no threat, and yet as time went by and warning after warning was ignored, Nebuchadnezzar became a world power. And he came in and he plundered the temple. Temple and those who didn't die by the sword, it says he took them into exile to be servants. That's where Daniel. That's how he ended up in Babylon until the king of Persia conquered Babylon. Right. right? And it says this was, going back to the text, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. What? The length of the exile was tied to what we read in Exodus and the number of Sabbaths that were ignored by Israel. God said, I've still got my calculator out and I know what I'm doing. And so it said all the days that it lay desolate, it kept the, um, that it lay desolate, it kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now if you've got a MacArthur study Bible, it says uh, in your footnotes, this suggests that the every seventh year Sabbath That God required for the land in Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. And of course in Exodus 24, uh, 23. said, had not been kept for 490 years. Dating back to the days of Eli. Remember Eli? Eli is the guy that Samuel worked for. That's a long, long time. And at some point, the farmers, the people of Israel said, this is too costly. We're losing money on all of this. All of the Canaanites around us, they don't have to do this stupid stuff. (coughs) Why is it only us? And they said, you know what, we could make more money. Kind of like people saying that if I didn't give so much money to the church, I could have a boat or a new car or something like that. It never seems... To have the right value system, there are material things that seem to be more important to God's people. And that's why Paul said when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And that's what happened here. And Israel didn't understand that all of those years where they ignored the Lord, and even though they may have initially made a crop and initially made their money and said this is a whole lot better than letting it lay fallow, it really wasn't. They were disobeying the Lord who owned the land. And you and I, if we're going to live in the abundant life of Christ, have to understand That everything we own belongs to the Lord, and we are to be stewards, and we are to be generous, and we are to be givers to the Lord. But it's more than just giving, it's the way we treat it, it's the way we think about everything that we have house, cars, clothes, money, all of those kind of things. We have to think about it right. And that brings us in to point number two if we're gonna be ready for Canaan, for that abundant life, then understand this genuine faith remembers and celebrates we go down to verse 14 three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year you know some people think that all god wanted in the old testament was making them give up things and making them fast well he talked far more about feasting than he ever did about fasting and what did they do in a feast they would celebrate now let's go on in verse 14 or verse 15, excuse me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. In other words, bring a gift whenever you come to worship. And the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field, and in the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. So three feasts. And he said oh, there's, the first one's unleavened bread, that included Passover, one day of Passover in a week of unleavened bread, and that celebrates redemption. The Feast of the Harvest was also called the Feast of Weeks. And Greek-speaking Jews called it Pentecost. And it celebrates God's provision. God took care of the people and God provided for the people in the wilderness and even after they got into the land. And we've got to always remember God has provided for us everything that we need. There's nothing that is made that God didn't make. And then there was the Feast of Ingatherings later in the Old Testament called the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, also called the Feast of Booths. And they would come to Jerusalem and they would build these temporary shelters kind of like going camping, being in a tent and they would live in those. What was the purpose of that? To remember when they didn't have permanent houses in the wilderness. And what happened during that time? God always took care of them, God always sustained them so we have times when we celebrate redemption and we ought to always be ready to shout and to clap and to sing and to smile at the redemption that God has given us because we didn't deserve it and then he talks about the harvest and we ought to be uh, not coming to worship empty handed but to come to give to the Lord out of what he has given to us because we are the richest country in the world and we live better than kings live and we ought to always always be grateful for that and do the first fruit giving and then we always should remember that God is the one who sustains us why do you have a job because God gave you the intellect why do you have a job because God gave you the physical ability Why do you have a job? Because God gave you a country with an economic system that uh, made you more than just a slave. And all of these kind of things are things we are supposed to celebrate. And uh, they did that last one at the end of the uh, agricultural um, uh, uh, time. And so they celebrated Those kind of things. And so if your faith doesn't celebrate, you're not quite ready for Canaan. If you don't have a happy place when you think about God and when you think about who he is, how he loves you, how he's been merciful to you, how he has blessed you, how he has redeemed you when you can't take the Lord's Supper and have joy bells ring in your soul, when you can't read your Bible and it doesn't fill you and satisfy you, when you can't gather with other believers and love the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit, then you're not quite ready for the abundant life. Because the abundant life is, of course, that life that remembers And it celebrates. It's not just about, why should I worship God? I prayed for something and he didn't answer. It's much more than that. It's look what God has done for us and remember that and celebrate it. Now, number three, faith, not the devil, is in the details. Haven't you heard that? Well, the devil's in the details. Well, actually, the Bible would record that faith is in the details. What do I mean by that? Verse 17. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the House of the Lord your God. Now, I want to just ask you to think about this. God said, I want you to do this three times a year, not two, not one, three. That's the standard. He said, I want your males to come. Now, it wasn't that wives and moms and children couldn't be a part of the feast, because you read other times they certainly were. You know what he was doing? He was saying, men, you guys are the ones that are going to tend to slack off. We don't really have that much problem getting women and children to come to Sunday school. But men, that's kind of a challenge sometimes. You get uh, women involved in things. They'll want to teach. They'll want to nurture. They'll want to help people. But sometimes the men, well, I'll just leave that to somebody else. And God knew that. And he also knew that any church that can get the men involved, that their family's probably going to be involved. But there were a lot of men who slept in this morning, and oh, they want their wife to go to church. They want their kids to go to church. Just not me. Just not me. And so God calls for the males to come. And uh, notice... That he said that all of the males, not just most of them, but all of them are to come. Lead the way. Lead your family. Pastor your family. Be the example for your family. It'll make a huge, huge difference in your life and in theirs. And then he said it's supposed to be clean and not contaminated. And he said with the first fruits, it's supposed to be fresh. Not the leftover rotten stuff after you've taken uh, everything that you want. Well, we've got this stuff over here, and it's going to rot anyway. Let's take it and give it to the Lord. And yet so many people have that kind of an attitude. And God said, I don't want the blood of the sacrifice mixed with the leavened bread. Well, come on, God, what are you, picky? Yeah. Yeah. And we tend to think that ah oh, this will be good enough for God. And we give him leftovers and we give him stuff that he doesn't want. Boy, isn't it awful when you're sitting around with your family and somebody gives you a present, and you're all excited about it, until you open it up and it's not anything you want, doesn't fit, it's not the right color, then you have the thing of what am I supposed to do? Well, it's always appropriate to be polite and say, thank you, but, um, you know, it's not a whole lot of fun. And uh, that's why when you go back the day after Christmas, the lines are so long in all the stores, right? People taking back all those wonderful gifts that you got them. And there are those times when we offer God things that cost us nothing. We offer to God things that he didn't ask for, and we ignore giving him the very thing that he wants. Render unto God the things that are God's. Unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But unto God the things that are God's. He wants your heart. He wants your thoughts. He wants your love. He wants your enthusiasm. He wants your obedience. Faith. The devil is not what's in the details. Faith is. And so faith pays attention. And looks at all of those things. And does it the way God once it done, not in a haphazard, casual manner. And then lastly, notice that the best faith is shown in difficult times. Okay? Here's our last part of the verse. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Huh? Where'd that come from? What's happening here? Doesn't that seem weird? Disjointed. When you come bring this and bring this and don't bring it this way and all of that and by the way don't be boiling a kid a young goat in its mother's milk I don't think there was a Jew present there that day that would ever thought of that there's nobody that went ah shoot planned on doing that this afternoon nobody did that why was God saying that because that's what the Canaanites did Now, we don't know a whole lot about it, but apparently it was a fertility rite. And they would take a young goat and they would milk its mother until they had enough to take the young goat and boil it in its mother's milk. Does that bother you? I mean, it's just sad. The very thing that should have sustained the young goat, fed the young goat, nurtured the young goat, Made it feel secure uh, being so close to its mother. And yet you're taking the mother's milk and boiling the goat in it as some kind of ritual or some kind of occultic thing or some kind of fertility rite or some kind of a sacrifice to some demonic god? And God throws that in. Why? Well, I'm picturing Israel is in the land finally and everything's good oh it's going good god is blessing and it is so great then there's that one year that one year when nothing seems to go right the ox had some calves and they died the donkey stumbled and broke its leg and had to be put to sleep now the poor israeli farmer is trying to push his own plow and having a few of the kids on the front of it to try to pull it because he doesn't have a donkey. What's he supposed to do? How's he supposed to make it? Well, he's praying while he has that, oh God, make everything fertile and productive. And he finally gets the crop planted and it doesn't rain. At least not at the right time. The sun's a little bit too hot. He's getting desperate. Getting desperate. He doesn't know what he is going to do then he notices one of his Canaanite neighbors their donkey had twins their garden is growing a lot of stuff and their crop looks fairly decent and so he goes over to his Canaanite neighbor and he says what did you do and he said oh I went to Baal whatever and uh, I offered a sacrifice Oh, what kind of sacrifices do y'all offer anyway? Oh, we took a goat and we boiled it in its mother's milk and offered it to our God and he has shown favor to us. Now, that Israeli farmer might have a tendency to walk back to his farm and go, you know, there might be something to that. And all of a sudden, this Faithful farmer, who for all of these years has given God the glory, dependent upon God for everything, now he gets himself in a pinch. He gets himself under desperate circumstances. And let me tell you, your faith, the quality of your faith, is shown when the times get hard. You're going to bail? You're going to quit? You're going to go the world's way? You're going to follow something else? Or are you going to be bulldogmatic and stay with the things of God? And far too many people are losing their testimony, they're losing their reputation, they're losing their effectiveness because they'll go all the way down on these four things we've talked about and when times get desperate, they think that they are off the hook. No, that's the time when your faith is really shown to be either good or bad whether it's going to be the best faith or whether your faith was just a casual, fleeting faith. What have you done for me lately, God? Instead of seeing things as they really are. And all of this reminds us that our faith is always insufficient, isn't it? We always have to grow in faith. I believe, someone said to Jesus, help thou my unbelief. I pray that quite often. There are those times when I say, Lord, this is so hard to believe. It was easy yesterday, but the circumstances of today have made it difficult. Well, God's not going to say, I don't worry about it today. Do whatever feels right. Do whatever seems right. Do whatever looks right. And look around you and do what's working for all of them. Why doesn't he say that? Because all of that is a temporary quick fix that is going to bring pleasure for a season, but it's you're going to reap something you don't want to reap, and it's going to be long-term. And so God says, just trust me. The Lord is my shepherd, David said, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And I want you to know today as we conclude... God is not saying these things simply because he's a God that wants to enforce his will on you. He'll do that, and he's powerful enough to do that. It is, after all, his land and his provision, everything that you have. But it's because he wants to restore your soul. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus has come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And that's why he died on the cross to pay for all of our sins. I hope you've trusted him for that. If not, will you? And will you confess him and surrender to him as Lord? And then, as believers, will you look and say, Lord, I'm not satisfied. I don't want to keep living the way that I'm living now. I want to cross over Jordan into the abundant life that Jesus died to give me. Well, here are four things that will help you get there. And once you get in there, it'll help you to stay there. These are things that are timeless principles that come out of God's Word, both in the Old and the New Testament. And these are the things that make your life joyful. And worth living. And truly, truly abundant. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, so many people are living substandard Christian lives. They're living lives that maybe look good and feel good. But they're just not producing the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that the Holy Spirit has promised to give us. Well, help us see that even in these four things, we violate them all the time. Only Jesus kept them perfectly. But you've called us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. So speak to our hearts now. Draw the lost to you. And also draw saved people to you today to show them how you want to bless them in this life with the abundant life in christ and i pray this in jesus name amen god bless you and thank you so much for your time thank you pastor just a couple of things before we